Welcome to the audio podcast of the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and in our recently renovated sanctuary. During the summer months from July 4th weekend through Labor Day weekend, our worship will be live Sunday morning at 10 a.m. We are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. God is so faithful, but I asked him to please not let me do the wrong thing, and here I am doing the wrong thing, amen? I'm so happy to be here among you today. I am a regular supporter and prayer for this church, and we at the Church of Gethsemane are so grateful for all of your support. I'm in my 11th year as pastor there, and we've been through many trials and troubles, as you have as well but it's been wonderful to be hand in hand. And once again, I just want to thank you very much. All of you, those of you who've come and brought lunch for our members, men who and women who are living in shelters where there's no hot food and yet they can have a hot meal after service once a month because of you. And I could take something home, too. (laughs) Single pastor, no help. And you've written letters to people in prison, and I tell you that some Sundays, when we read the letters that come back, we come close to weeping because the people are so uplifted by those monthly letters that you and we write to them. Sometimes on the verge of suicide, a person will say, but that your letter came and you said, we care about you, keep pushing, don't give up. And that meant so much. And so in every way, from your prayers, your financial help when the hurricane came, and no one else came to help us, First Brooklyn was there. Amen? Amen. Give yourselves a hand. You are wonderful. And to those of you who are not here with us but who are watching on YouTube, my members, particularly those who are in the hospital or who've come out of the hospital or who need to be in the hospital, we are praying for you. I've come this morning with a message, and I have to give a disclaimer first because I'm on vacation, and I've been traveling a lot, and so I have not had access to the usual materials that I use to prepare a sermon, and so I've had to draw heavily from sermon material from working preacher. And so I share a message with you that I believe that God has given me for such a time as this. My scripture this morning and this 
little story that some of you who have experience in Sunday school have heard about Joseph and Jacob. If you've heard it in Sunday school, uh, you're going to need to read it again because there were some juicy details that they never told me, and I don't think they shared with you as well. So it's Genesis chapter 45. The lectionary says verses 1 to 15, but I'm going to stop at verse 8a. This passage is a dramatic ending to a magnificent account of one of our major biblical ancestors, Jacob, and his family. And as I said, I urge you to read. Read the whole pericope from uh, chapter 37 to 50. It will hold your attention and your interest, I assure you. It's better than some of the sitcoms that we're watching today. It's a story of the family of Jacob and his two wives. And you know whenever there are two wives, there's always going to be trouble. So there are two wives and two female slaves who together bear Jacob daughters and 12 sons. And these 12 sons uh, uh, become the ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so even as you read, as I said, if you've read the story in Sunday school, there are some intimate details that I'm sure your teachers didn't explore, and it's worth a second reading. Much of the story centers on Joseph, who's Jacob's son, whom he favored, he spoiled, and he doted on, famously gifting him with that special coat, an impressive coat, a type of coat that he should have only given to the eldest son. And this gifted coat was the last straw for Joseph's already jealous brothers. Their resentment boiled over one day, and they did what people are doing every Saturday and Thursday and Tuesday. They beat him up, and they planned to kill him. But instead of killing him, they threw him into a pit and sold him to a caravan of slave traders who were on their way to Egypt. And they killed a goat, spilled the blood on that special coat, brought it back to their father, Jacob, and told him that wild animals had killed Joseph. You can imagine the grief that father had. Surprisingly, though, then, Joseph has an incredible life from slavery in Egypt to being falsely accused, charged, and sent to prison. He was freed several years, not as early as he expected. He really thought that he would be able to get right out since, of course, he was innocent. But he was eventually freed because he was able to interpret a troublesome dream of Egypt's pharaoh. Then, as she messes up the pages, it was a prophetic dream that he interpreted with advice for the pharaoh, which would protect 
Egypt from a famine that was coming. And it would protect Egypt only if the pharaoh implemented certain uh, saving measures. The pharaoh, as you could imagine, was so grateful for the warning that he gave Joseph several very important positions, eventually overseeing the entire Egyptian empire. Now, fast forward a decade later, and Joseph is only a memory to his family. And a terrible famine has come to the lands around Egypt where Jacob and his family and the community of God's people have been settled. And the famine came and many were dying because of hunger. But Jacob has heard that the Pharaoh is selling grain. And so he sends his sons He's a little nervous about sending his sons out, but there was no choice to live or die. He sends them to the Pharaoh to buy grain. And little do the men know when they reach Egypt that the high and mighty official, the advisor to the Pharaoh, his chief of staff, will be their brother Joseph, who against all odds has survived and prospered. Now Joseph, as you can imagine, has had plenty of time to brood and to consider what he might do, what he will do to these lousy backstabbing brothers of his. If he ever just gets the chance and now, unexpectedly, that day has come, and Joseph finds himself face to face with them. They're on their knees before him in this great hall, surrounded by lesser officials and palace guards, whom Joseph could command at any moment to take them away to torture, to prison, or even to kill them. Let's see what happens as I read verses 1 to 8a. Let's see what happens with the brothers kneeling before him and the possibilities swirling in Joseph's head about what he could do, what he should do, what he wants above all else to do to these lousy, backstabbing brothers. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. So none of those officials stayed with him. They all left. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And even he was heard in the household of the Pharaoh. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him. They were so dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. 
He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. But do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent you ahead of, for God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For God sent me ahead of you so that I could preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be no plowing nor harvest. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant so that all of your people would not die out and to keep alive for you many survivors. And so this last verse says, so it was not you that sent me here, but God. Let us pray. Oh, precious Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that behind it all you were there. God, you sent you set these things in order to preserve a people, not just Israel, but Egypt as well. And so we pray today that you will send us a life preserver. And that life preserver is you. Amen. So I, I, I titled this uh, The Life Preserver because I've been traveling on planes recently on my vacation. And the first leg of my vacation, after sitting uh, comfortably in my aisle seat, excited about my trip, the stewardess comes into the aisle with instructions. You've seen this. First, she tells you to fasten your seat belts. I got that pretty well. But then she comes with the life preserver, that yellow jacket. And she says, all right, buckle here, buckle there. There's that, blow in this tube, blow in that tube. Then there's a light and it'll come on, but don't do this, do that. <laughs> and you know, I've flown many times and I know you have probably seen this thousands of times, but at some point I lost it. I couldn't follow anymore. And I just sat back and said a prayer, oh Lord, I'm not, I, I'm not gonna have this. Please be my life preserver. I actually said those words. And then they tell you the light, you know, attracts uh, sharks. I, I, I just lost it. I couldn't. Blowing this, blowing that, I couldn't get it. So the, today's text from the Old Testament is about a lifesaver of a different sort. This life preserver was Joseph whom God put in place not only to save his family, but to make sure that Israel and the Egyptian people survived the famine as well. Joseph says three times in this passage, God sent me to preserve life, which the writer is telling us is the main point for us to understand. God sent me to preserve life. 
Now we may legitimately wonder whether Joseph knew that he was fulfilling God's purpose before this event, but there's no hint anywhere that he had any idea of, the, of this being his role. In fact, before Joseph forgives his brothers, he wrestles with a strong desire to scare and to shame them. He has to arrive at forgiveness slowly and painfully, which is maybe why he wept so loudly and uncontrollably that he could be heard even in Pharaoh's residence. But what we do know is that his words about forgiveness and God's protective actions completely changed and redefined the whole situation for everyone involved. First of all, the guilty fear of his brothers is superseded. The possible vengeful action of Joseph is ended and the grief of the father is resolved. So now Joseph has no need to triumph over his family. All actions are used to disclose the hidden call and purpose of God for the survival of the individuals, the family, and the community. It's an incredible story, yes it is, but it's no more incredible than the tale of a man thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, falsely imprisoned, who then has his oppressors within his power to punish but instead chooses to forgive. Who does that? This sort of forgiveness was not easy back then, nor is it easy today, for the way of the world we see is more often the way of revenge. It's, the way, it's not the way of forgiving others, especially when the wound is deep. It is one of the most difficult things any of us will be called on to do, that is, to forgive. Yet few tasks are more important, not only for the person being forgiven, but also for the person doing the forgiving. So many people committed to justice value forgiveness, but others worry that it lets the oppressors off. Calls for forgiveness and reconciliation today are made to sound weak and unfair. But true forgiveness, true forgiveness doesn't condone the wrong that has been done. Forgiveness freely and openly acknowledges past offenses, but then it moves on. May I say that again? True forgiveness freely and openly acknowledges past offenses and then moves on. That's the part we have trouble with, moving on. Seeking always to preserve life, personal relationships, and to preserve the community. That's what forgiveness does. 
It allows us to preserve personal relationships, to keep the community together. So let's ask ourselves today, is there an alternative to forgiveness? Is there? I don't think so, for without it, human relationships or communities cannot be sustained. You've seen it, we read about it in the paper, we see it on TV, we see nothing but cycles of retaliation, of violence and genocide. They all repeat themselves without forgiveness. We've also seen the studies that say we're more subject to heart disease, to strokes, to headaches, to stress, to name a few. And some say it's because of unforgiveness. And so, beloved, today in this cultural religious moment where we're located, the calls for forgiveness and reconciliation are dim. The models I think about, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, Bishop Desmond Tutu, who died just this year, they're past. So it has to begin with us. It has to begin with us, with you, and with me. For it's said that among the most powerful human experiences is to forgive or to receive forgiveness. So let's acknowledge today. Let's agree, let's understand that resentment is toxic and let us reach for forgiveness. St. Francis of Assisi, in one of his prayers, ended it by saying, we are pardoned, and par we are par that pardoning, when we pardon, we are pardoned. And Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Lord, taught us to pray, saying, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others who trespass against us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you are fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options, both in person and online, Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time during the summer from July 4th weekend through Labor Day weekend. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.